as I told you, uh, in, in, there was not much understanding about the informal workers. There's even less understanding about home-based workers. Hello and welcome to the Nagrik Podcast. What you just heard was the voice of Renana Jabwala, the National Coordinator of SEVA, the Self-Employed Women's Association of India. She was speaking to me about home-based workers. India's garment sector employs at least 12 million people in factories, but millions more work from home, mostly women and girls from minority or marginalized communities. To learn about the use of home-based labor in the garment industry, I spoke to Dev Nathan, a professor at the Institute for Human Development. Now, when we look at employment in the garment industry, it is quite large itself and it is, amounts to about 7 million people working in the garment industry. Not all of it, of course, is export oriented or part of the global value chains. A lot of, a lot of it is with regard to domestic value chains, which are largely in the informal sector. But overall, it is quite large and it's about 6% of that is of total manufacturing employment. Within that, women are about 40% of garment workers. So they're quite large in this sector. But what is important to note is they are only 23% of what we call regular workers. That is workers with some kind of well, not security of employment, but at least some regularity of employment. They are paid on a monthly basis, not on a weekly or daily basis. And they do get some social security in terms of provident fund and uh, some kind of employees, medical insurance. But women in that are only 25, 23% of the regular workers are women. So it is important to note that women are not only, they're quite large in the sector as a whole, but they're more precariously employed than men. They tend to be uh, contract labor, as we put it, or indirectly employed by the factory, not directly on the factory roles, but through contractors. Many of them are uh, casual workers. A large number are also home workers. That is, they work from home for the companies. They, the companies subcontract them some tasks like finishing garments or carrying out some parts of embroidery and they are paid a piece rate for this. These invisible home workers are of course the most vulnerable of the lot. As we saw in the, in the lockdowns recently, they completely lost their income and they got nothing at all from the, from the factories for which they were working. But as Renana Jawala told me, the garment industry is not the only type of manufacturing that uses the labor of home-based workers. Um, second largest is different types of leather. Uh, and in the garments and textiles, there are all kinds of things. There's stitching, there's embroidery, there's uh, cutting of threads, there's winding of threads, you know, uh, associated with factories. Uh, then there is, uh, in the textiles, of course, handloom weavers. There's a very large number of handloom weavers and even powerloom weavers, which are home-based. Uh, that's, of course, the largest section. The uh, <clears throat> But apart from that, there are lots and lots and lots of different types of trade. So at one point, we were doing the A to Z. If you go from A to Z, you will find some kind of trade in each one. Uh, in X, for example, you find uh, making Xmas um, toys. 
so there are lots of there are lots of things, small machinery parts, electronics, um, um, making of toys, all kinds of things. I you know won't list them all right now. Repair of uh, repair of uh, t uh, mobile phones and so on. You are listening to the Nagrik podcast. I am Aju John and through this podcast, I hope that we can learn together to become better at participating in public life from the people who have organized and advocated for meaningful and progressive change. Nagrik podcasts are available on nearly all podcasting platforms, including Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. So if you like learning from remarkable civic actors, you can subscribe to the podcast on any of these apps and thus get to know when I release a new episode. These podcasts are a part of Nagrik Open Civic Learning, a project to reduce inequality in access to knowledge about the law, public institutions and civic and political participation. Right now on www.nagriklearning.com that is n a g r i k l e a r n i n g.com you can learn for free about advancing the rights of workers and supply chains from videos and other open educational materials that were prepared with support from oxfam in 2018 we learned from india's national sample survey data that 4 out of 5 indian women of the working age are neither working nor seeking employment this ratio known as the rate of female labor force participation is among the lowest in the world Perhaps the most important reason why such a small proportion of India's women engage in paid work is that they spend so much more time than men in providing care at home. Indian women perform over 10 times more unpaid labor than men. And perhaps as a result, the paid work that is available to India's chronically time-poor women is often precarious and exploitative and falls within the category known as informal work. Put simply, there is no formal relationship of employment with a single identifiable employer and workers have little or no legal protection or social security that is linked to their work home based work falls in this category next we listen to martha chen a lecturer in public policy at the harvard kennedy school and an affiliated professor at the harvard graduate school of design she is also one of the founders of wego women in informal employment globalizing and organizing a global research policy action network and today is among its senior advisors well i think the the ground reality is that for many women um particularly in societies where women's mobility is constrained outside the home sort of 
upper caste India Muslim world uh, where women's mobility outside the home is looked down on. Um, Home-based work is a, perhaps the only real option for them. The other is that for women in many societies, um, it's a way to be able to juggle the domestic work and the care work with paid work. Um, because in many societies, by default, domestic chores and care work falls more heavily on women than men. In India, one third of all women workers are home-based. In India, one third of all manufacturing units are home-based. People just have no idea what, how, you know, that automobile parts and airline cushions and pharmaceutical packaging and electronic assembly. And they know something about garments and shoes and the, how much of the food processing so many things happen through home-based work, right? It's found in more of the sub-branches of industry than maybe any other of these sectors. It's everywhere, right? Um, I remember going to a, a, a conference on uh, corporate social responsibility in New York City with somebody from HomeNet Thailand, and we had a presentation on homework and workers and global supply chains and all of that. And all these corporate social responsibility agents came running up afterwards. And one of them was from Burger King. And I thought, okay, you know, what, what, what are the homeworkers doing in the Burger King chain, right? And what it was is the boxes are printed flat, right, with the cutouts, but they need to be assembled. And so homeworkers are assembling the boxes, right, for Burger King in many countries. Um, so you, you never know where you'll find them doing what, yeah? So, um, and it's because it's something that doesn't need supervision and they can pay very low low, low wages, right? Um, but what I, I want to make a point which you asked about home-based workers, which is actually we talk about two types of home-based workers. Uh, one is home-based workers who work on a piece rate. So, uh, like the first case that I told you, where they came to us, and these are workers that there are shops in that same area. They give little pieces of cloth to the workers. Uh, the women make it into quilt covers, and then they give it back to the shop owner. Or sometimes there's a contractor, and they get paid by the piece rate, and the piece rates are very low. Similarly, you will find today uh, a lot of stitching work, also at that time, but ordinary kind of stitching, stitching of petticoats, stitching of little children's garments. Uh, you'll find from factories, they give out work like uh, cutting, of, cutting the threads of a piece of cloth, uh, hemming, stitching. So all those types of things uh, are piece rated. And that's all they get. They don't invest anything, although, of course, they have to invest in their own machines, uh, invest in their own homes, invest in their own lighting and so on. And then there are those who are sort of self-employed. So they would make up a garment and uh, either sell it themselves or they would um, sell, give it to somebody, uh, sell it to somebody who goes and sells it. So they then have to invest in the cloth and so on. 
And another type of self-employed is uh, like tailors, women who become tailors. So people would come to the house, give them an order. Um, so there are different types of uh, home-based workers who are either you can identify a contractor employer or you can't, and then they're kind of self-employed. So those are the two types that exist. But as I mentioned, when they leave the factory, they often are pushed into becoming home workers. They also become home workers in another period, and that is when their childbearing years, because most factories don't give either maternity benefits, nor certainly many, very few have a crash for child care. So what happens is that the women are forced out between the ages of 25 to 30 when they are having children or between a little earlier. And that is the time they then work at home. Otherwise also there are those who are home workers. Now the home worker is doubly exploited. First, first of all, they are called the invisible workers because they don't exist in the value chains. If you go and ask any factory, They'll tell you, no, no, we don't give any work outside the factory. All of the work is done in the factory. But if you go to Bareilly or if you go even around in, uh, in, in the other, you know, go around Tirupur, etc., around these garment clusters, you will find that there is work given at home. Two kinds of work are given. One is hand embroidery and the other is finishing tasks like, you know, cutting the threads and so on, minor jobs like that, or even putting, uh, putting on tags and things like that. Now, of course, they don't give brands. They don't give you the garment with a brand name because they're scared that the, some media may come and take a photograph or videograph this where the women are working with certain brand name clothes after they had trouble when they, you know, the Gap brand was found on certain garments that were being worked on by children. So they didn't want this kind of thing happening again. So now they don't give you that. But the point is, first of all, they do. They are forced into this, and they. But, with, uh, but they're not just workers. The problem is that on top of getting a low wage, they also are forced to supply or buy their own equipment for work, like the needles. They don't buy thread because thread will is an important uh, input, and you cannot afford to have a variation in the quality of the thread. But whether it is needles or scissors or even a sewing machine. And plus, of course, the space on which you work and the electricity and all of that for working, all, all that cost is borne by the worker. That reduces, therefore, the actual re remuneration that is being paid to the women. Now, even in home working, you'll find a gender difference. Men work for one also do homework. There are many women, men who are home workers, but they, one is they tend to work for longer stretches of time. They, you know, they don't have the burden of childcare and having to be multitasking, as we say. Therefore, they're able to concentrate. Secondly, they usually have a separate uh, space for their work, which is a room adjoining the main room in which they live. Women don't have a separate space. They work from within their living space itself. So men also work much more than uh, earn more as home workers than women do. So there's a gender difference even in home working. And so if you're an industrial outworker, home worker in developing countries in manufacturing, you're subcontracted and you're typically paid by the piece for what you what you produce. 
And what we now know as sort of a stylized fact is that home workers are typically paid around half of what the factory workers in that same uh, sector would be. So like, you know, the export garment sector, the ready-made garment sector, the home workers would be paid rough, they would earn roughly half of what the factory workers. And their <clears throat> problem is that they're dependent on the factories or firms up the chain for the work orders. And the work orders come when there's peak production and the factories and firms want to outsource work. Um, but it can dry up. Um, so in the factories, you have core workers and peripheral workers and the peripheral workers work, but the home workers are losing jobs and orders um, faster than the factory workers. Um, but there's some industries, if you take India, like the beauty industry or the um, uh, incense stick rolling industry, where those are no longer much in factories and it's mainly home-based work. So the work is um, reasonably steady, but the earnings are very low. And because they're invisible in the homes, <laughs> they haven't <clears throat> been, you know, sometimes the wages or the piece rates haven't been increased for decades, right? Because they don't have the bargaining power to, um, to demand it. Um, uh, we found out through COVID, the COVID uh, study that um, in Tirupur, which is the t-shirt capital of India, um, in Tamil Nadu more broadly, uh, the home workers are not registered in the state uh, labor welfare boards to get certain benefits. And this is something that the union of home workers in Tirupur is fighting for because they often don't get recognized as workers. So there, there are layers of problems. Right. So they didn't qualify in Tirupur for certain things that uh, other informal workers qualified for as COVID relief. Ordinarily, the balance of power in negotiations between employers and individual workers is in favor of employers. When workers negotiate as a group, however, the negotiations are less unfair. Usually, the entities that negotiate on behalf of a group or several groups of workers are known as trade unions. Trade unions had originally emerged to represent the interests of the male breadwinner, that is, a man working a formal job in a factory to earn wages to support himself and his wife and children. That ideal, however, is no longer the reality of work. 61% of the world's workers, that is, nearly 2 billion workers, earn their living in the informal economy. In South Asia, over 80% of women in non-agricultural jobs are in informal employment. While traditional labor organizing happened in opposition to a specific employer or around a specific workplace, informal work does not share these features. Traditional labor unions often failed to recognize these special barriers that informal workers faced and were in many cases unable to adequately represent their interests. The next voice that you're going to listen to is that of feminist historian and labor activist Eileen Boris, a professor at the Department of Feminist Studies in the University of California, Santa Barbara. And the image of the worker we had from the mid 20th century, from the 1930s to the 40s, 50s, was the auto worker, the steel worker, the man abroad, 
and there's these wonderful if, if we were um if i was showing you a powerpoint i'd have these images from uh these heroic gods kind of like socialist realism but you also had that in the u.s under the new deal these men of brawn with their yeah, bare chests and their strong arms you know well by the 1990s the new face of labor had been the home care worker had been the service sector worker we have shifted globally in some places you know it's uneven and unequal development globally we know that the global supply chains for industry have gone uh elsewhere but in we've become in the u.s a service economy and a and a financial sector economy and so the face of labor has changed when we think of essential workers today they are jobs that are either feminized or dominated by bio women by women um, uh, that their health care uh, and, and it's mostly the nurses and the healthcare aides uh, you, the attendants in hospitals and outside it's retail it's restaurant industry it's business services now some of this is masculine you know i tech we think of you know is masculine the silicon valley boys but the but that's these are sort of these are either immaterial labor cognitive labor or or they are the service sector which traditionally has been part-time low-wage impermanent i'm less organized so with the very shifts in economic life the structures of organization have shifted as well first thing the law excludes many workers as really workers they're not defined as employees this the most egregious that just happened in california everything begins in california <laughs> i have to tell you um, with proposition 22 that uh infamously passed in which uber and lyft essentially uh overturned both the courts and the legislature in defining the people that uh, the drivers as uh, independent contractors rather than as employees uh, fewer and fewer people, though, are defined any longer as traditional employees that so, and you can't find the employer through these attenuated contracting out, people are temporary workers, etc. So new labor formations are needed uh, because even nurses, so many get defined uh, as supervisors and thus they're outside of the bargaining unit.
Seva, the Self-Employed Women's Association of India, was established in 1972 in Ahmedabad in Gujarat as a trade union of poor self-employed women. The story of its origins demonstrates how it tried to provide representation to workers who did not fit the mold of the male breadwinner. Let's return to Renana Jawala, who is Seva's national coordinator. In Seva Self-Employed Women's Association, we first started working with home workers in uh, very early on. I think it must have been about five or six years after Seva was formed. Seva stands for Self-Employed Women's Association, and it is a trade union of women in the informal economy. Uh, the informal economy in India is very large. Um, <clears throat> I think it's over 90% if you include agriculture and about 80% if you don't. And um, the workers, those who work in the informal economy, uh, have a variety of types of work ranging from wage work, salaried work, daily wage work, uh, then piece rated work. And then, of course, all types of self-employment uh, from very small own account workers to family businesses to micro entrepreneurs. And so it's a it's a really big spectrum. And the women in most of these trades, although they're working, tend to be invisible. Um, we started, I was, of course, at the time not there. It was started by Ila Bhatt. In 1972, Seva was registered as a trade union uh, of women in the informal economy. We called it self-employed because that was a uh, respectable name. Uh, we wanted to give dignity to the workers. And Seva, of course, you know, in Indian languages, stands for service. Though the uh, Hindi or Gujarati uh, term is more, uh, ex explains more, it is Swashrai Mahila Seva Sangh. Swashrai means by her own work. Mahila, of course, is women. Seva is, it's a service, uh, that service is important. And Sangh is uh, organization or coming together. So... We started with a group of uh, head loaders, women who carry loads on their head, and then moved to different trades, uh, street vendors, and then the home-based workers. Now, this is what happened, that somebody came to us, somebody from another trade union, a male, came to us and said that in my locality, women are sewing quilt covers in their homes, and they are being paid very less. And can you do something about it? So we did a survey. And to our surprise, we found that there were thousands of women who in their own homes were sewing, uh, doing stitching work. And we brought them together and we confronted, helped them to confront the employers. And um, then through a process, uh, we managed to raise the rates a little bit. We also managed to get many of the workers disemployed, unemployed, uh, out, of uh, out of vindictive employers. And so then we 
in order that they keep working, uh, they said, why don't we start something of our own? And we started a cooperative. And that really was the strategy of SEVA. On the one hand, uh, fighting for rights as a trade union, and on the other, helping to reach directly into the market by forming cooperatives or small companies or um, <clears throat> skill training and so on. Uh, our founder, Ila Bhatt, was actually part of an existing trade union called the Textile Labor Association, which was a large trade union of textile workers in Ahmedabad, which is why she thought of registering a trade union in the first place. That was her experience. Uh, what was the resistance was mainly from the bureaucracy. And the arguments that they made were interesting. First, they said that... Um, you cannot register a trade union if there is no employer. Uh, secondly, they said that you cannot register a trade union where you have all different types of workers. You need only one type of worker, <clears throat> uh, only one trade or one uh, sector. Third, they said, how can you have a union of self-employed workers? Fourth, they said, you can't have a women's trade union because it is discriminatory. These were their four arguments. Um, <clears throat> and I especially quote those arguments because we registered Seva in Gujarat. And subsequently, we have been registering state-level uh, trade unions in many other states. And over the last 40 years, almost 40 years now, 30-something years, Every time we go to register trade union, we meet exactly the same argument. All four arguments are repeated again and again. Um, <clears throat> our answer to the arguments, first of all, none of these objections exist in the Trade Union Act. In the Trade Union Act, it's just, it can be an association of workers. It can even be an association of employers. I think earlier, today not, but earlier, FIKI was registered as a trade union. Um, <clears throat> so there's nothing in the Trade Union Act which uh, supports any of these objections. We countered each of these objections. Firstly, we said that um, a trade union, you don't need one employer or a class of employers. A trade union can be for the workers, not necessarily against somebody. Uh, and that is supported by the Act. Second, we said that um, in the informal economy, people change their work from time to time. They also do multiple works. So somebody may be a vegetable vendor in the day and come home in the evening and stitch garments. So um, that's, uh, that, that was our argument there. Again, there's nothing in the act that says that you can't have. And in other countries, uh, you have a lot of general unions. So this is a general union where it doesn't only have one trade. Uh, the third thing was that, again, self-employed, uh, again, uh, self-employed can be for the workers, for their interest. They can form a union and employers have formed unions. As I said earlier, Vicky was a union. And fourthly, yes, um, women's trade union doesn't involve men. But, and this was now the late, the 70s where um, the women's movement had just started and the government was talking a lot about women's empowerment, and they still are doing that. So those were the four arguments. 
you had an interesting question. And, and anyway, finally, we did get it registered. Partly we got it registered, not overcoming the bureaucracy through political means, because the uh, union which we were part of, the Textile Labor Association, was at the time politically quite powerful. Um, <clears throat> but uh, as I said, we go, have to go state by state, even today, the same arguments. As I told you, uh, in, in, there was not much understanding about the informal workers. There's even less understanding about home-based workers. And again, every time we try to organize the home-based workers, we get pushback both from the bureaucracy as well as, of course, from the empl employer type of people who are paying them very low peace rates. Um, they say these are not workers. These are women who are doing some kind of work in their leisure time. Um, we've done many surveys and we found that they spend anywhere between six to eight hours working, sometimes 12 hours, sometimes less, five hours, four hours. But it's not women doing work in their leisure time. It's women who are actually spending almost the whole day doing this work and who are doing it for the money, not because they have a little leisure time. But we get that argument again and again, even today, even today. So, so home-based workers is home-based work is a very invisible work. Also, the numbers were not known to us because the statistics were not collected on home-based workers. So when we started, and much later through our own efforts, we were able to get the government itself to give us statistics on home-based workers. Um, and I think the uh, numbers in India today, the official numbers is 35 million uh, home-based workers. Um, <clears throat> but you, we had to, get them to collect the statistics in a different way. Um, just one more issue attached, which is that uh, earlier the home was never considered a workplace. So the issue of what is a workplace is also important. And in the case of home-based workers, the home is a workplace. And I think today we have got that accepted. And of course, the Home, home Workers Convention was one big step. Once the employers said that these are just housewives doing something in their leisure time, that meant that they didn't need to pay them because they were, it was just a quote-unquote hobby. And that attitude persists even today. So once they're not workers, you don't need to think about them for uh, any kind of minimum wage. So it immediately contributes to very, very, very low peace rates, even today, very low peace rates. The second thing is um, that none of the social security measures was reaching out to them because they didn't exist. Uh, health and safety is a very interesting point because when the home is the workplace, then unless you uh, invest in the home, you're not investing in the workplace. So... Um, it, it, more than health and you know more than safety because there wasn't many issues of safety there are few safety issues which were to do with uh, unsafe trades in the home like fireworks there were fireworks and matches both happening in the home uh, and even today uh, we do have 
like lack uh, people who use fire in the home, like lack makers and so on. Uh, but um, <clears throat> on the whole, especially for the garment and so on, safety was not the major concern. A major concern was that the houses that they lived in were small, hot, and very poor lighting, which means it affected their eyes uh, tremendously and their productivity went down. So a very low productivity because of a poor workplace. Oh, I must say one more thing, which is, uh, I, I said safety was not a concern. It was a concern because they were children. So there were often small children around. And um, uh, uh, a lot of our members were beady workers who made, you know, those homemade cigarettes. And for them, uh, you, they have tobacco in the home. Um, People who are running machines, the children come and put their fingers in at any point. So that was a concern. In fact, if you ask a home-based worker, what is the best thing about home working at home? She'll say that uh, we can keep an eye on the children. And then what you ask, what's the most difficult thing? She says, because the children are around all the time, so you can't really have a good productivity. So <clears throat> it's a dilemma. Along with organizing together, labor law for workers is another device that corrects the imbalance in power between employers and employees. The idea is that the state intervenes in the labor market through labor law to prevent wages and conditions of work from being pushed below levels that are considered acceptable. Labor law contains rules to protect the ability of workers to organize and bargain collectively and sets out minimum standards for various aspects of work such as wages, working time, health and safety, workplace facilities, and social security. Labor law can be found in the rules and orders of national and local administrative authorities, the statutes passed by legislatures, national constitutions, and in international instruments. But most labor protections too are only available to formal workers who earn wages. There are hardly any laws that protect the wages of informal workers or the peace rates that are paid to home workers. In India, most of these standards have been established through central or state statutes and enforced through a system of labor inspectors and labor courts and tribunals. Since 1919, the International Labor Organization has maintained and developed a system of international labor standards which set out the basic principles for women and men to obtain decent and productive work. Having international standards was important because of the international nature of the market for labor. Through international standards, countries refrained from entering into a race to the bottom on wages and conditions of labor. The ILO's international labor standards are drawn up by the representatives of governments, employees and workers and are adopted at the annual international labor conference. Each member state is represented by a delegation consisting of two government delegates, an employer delegate, and a worker delegate. Every delegate has the same rights. Worker and employer delegates may sometimes vote against their government's representatives or against each other. Because of this kind of tripartite participation, the ILO's international labor standards represent some basic minimum standards agreed upon by all the players in the global economy. In 2019, Eileen Boris published her book, Making the Woman Worker, 
Precarious Labor and the Fight for Global Standards, 1919-2019. to She will help us understand the ILO and its labor standards. International labor standards are aspirational conventions that essentially provide a normative guideline for countries to uh, enact laws and it, it levels the playing fields. They have their origins in the end of World War I when the social democratic yet capitalist nations wanted to stem the tide of Bolshevism with the Russian Revolution by giving us some reward to the, their labor movements. And we're talking mostly at that time about the imperial countries of Britain and France. These standards would, uh, in essence, uh, level their competition among each other as well in the world of commerce. The International Labor Organization then comes out of the Treaty of Versailles and it was connected to first the League of Nations and then the United Nations with the reconstitution of a global international body. Now, these standards then are what's agreed upon through the International Labor Conference. And that means they are the lowest common denominator because you have to get employer organizations as well as an array of governments to agree. And, and this is I think incredibly important for women workers, that the labor representatives for most of the last hundred years have come from the peak labor bodies of each nation. So in the United States, would be the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, the Trade Union Congress in Great Britain, for example. And that meant to the extent that these organizations were industrial organizations or maritime organizations, or were dominated by male workers in those sectors, it meant that women workers weren't truly represented directly through uh, most of the labor representatives sent to the ILO to, hang, to bang out these um, negotiations on these conventions. However, the ILO from the very beginning had a, a component of its uh, constitution that said when issues involving women are going to be discussed, it encourages, encourages, it didn't mandate countries to have women delegates. It also said when colonial questions, then there should be representatives from the colonial countries. It was, it was part of an attempt to give some democratic say to the people involved, but still the reign of control would be with the hegemonic powers of that time. So that meant uh, that it was women experts and women in government that played an originary role for most of the labor standards that were developed until very recently. And with the domestic worker convention, 
of 2011. And before that, the convention that SEWA in India, the Self-Employed Women's Association, was a spearhead for home-based laborers in 1996, I believe, convention 177. Those conventions through the process uh, allowed some input and some say of the actual workers involved through their coalition allies, really. Now, global labor standards then are important because workers can take them, bring them back to their countries, and use them for their own organizing campaigns. So from, a, from the standpoint of workers then, it, there is what I call a dialectic of strikes and standards or protest and policy, that you, you need a level of agitation on the ground in order to uh, initiate a process of policy making or standard making. Once you get the standard, then you bring it back and you use it for your own organizing and for, in the case of international standards, for improvements in the uh, actual laws, but also their enforcement uh, in your given country. You are listening to Eileen Boris on the Nagrik Podcast. On this episode, we are learning together about how there came to be an international convention that set out standards for homework. If you like this episode, then please don't forget to recommend it to your colleagues, friends, and family. As we have seen, international labor standards are legal instruments drawn up by the ILO's constituents, which are governments, associations of employers, and associations of workers. They set out basic principles and rights at work. Among the different types of the ILO's international instruments, Conventions are international treaties that are binding on ILO member states once they ratify them. Ratifying countries agree to apply the convention in their national law and practice and to report on its application at regular intervals. There are even procedures for monitoring the compliance of countries that have ratified a convention, including ways in which national trade unions can bring instances of non-compliance to the attention of the ILO. India has ratified 47 ILO conventions, including six of the eight that are considered fundamental. The story of the International Convention for Home Workers starts with Seva in India. So let's return to Renana Jabwala. Uh, let me explain to you how the whole thing came about. So we had started organizing home-based workers, and I should tell you, there wasn't a term home-based workers in India at the time. We invented that term because they didn't officially exist. So uh, there was no home-based workers, but then we invented the term home-based workers. And uh, then they, uh, we started uh, talking a lot about them. Um, and just at that time, in the ILO, there was an interest which was being, um, and, and this was now, I think, must have been the uh, late 80s, mid to late 80s. And uh, as you know, globalization had started 
informalization was growing worldwide. And so the ILO became interested in the informal sector. And they, uh, the ILO office in Delhi, we were known as an union which worked with the informal sector workers. They approached us and said, can we do a project together? And we suggested, why don't we do a look at the home-based workers and we can have a three-way project, I mean, three things in the project, three legs. One would be helping to organize them. What are the issues that emerge from organizing them? Secondly, we look at their legal status and uh, talk about what can be done to legally protect them. And third, we do service to actually understand their working conditions. And so we took up this project in Gujarat, in Madhya Pradesh, and in UP, um, in three places. And we had, in all three places, we had um, lawyers to look at their legal status. And at the end of the project, we uh, actually had a meeting with different lawyers and um, you know what can legally be done for them. And we were struggling with this idea that, well, can we make changes in Minimum Wages Act and can we make changes in this act and that act and so on? Yeah. So at the end of the project, we had a seminar where all the lawyers were there and we were struggling with different acts. What do we change in the Minimum Wages Act? What do we change in the... Um, <clears throat> Provident Fund Act and so on. And then somebody suggested, um, and th that somebody was a lawyer called Indira Jaising. So Indira said, what actually, instead of trying to, uh, uh, trying to mold these home-based workers into acts which are not meant for them, you really need a new act. And that's when we thought of a totally new law. And this is when we went, uh, this was taken by the ILO back to their, the ILO India, back to the ILO um, International, you know, the head office. And uh, they wanted to do more projects all over the world on home-based workers. In fact, they started another one in Southeast Asia also. Uh, but meanwhile, we realized that, uh, that internationally there was an interest in this. And we did not see that much interest in India. We talked to the government. Uh, Ilabhat was um, invited member of parliament, nominated member of parliament. She brought up the issue as an independent member, but they didn't seem to be that much interest in it in India. But the ILO was interested. And uh, we also, um, <clears throat> being a trade union, we were able to get in touch with the international trade unions. And by 1986, in fact, we were the members of uh, a couple of international trade uh, federations. And we brought up the issue there and they were very interested. And, and then we realized that there's a lot of interest at the international level. And so at the international level, we began finding out about other organizations which were working with home-based workers. And we, in fact, found quite a few very small in some places. In some places, trade unions themselves were working with home-based workers, uh, or what they called home workers. And internationally, there was the term home workers. We were not aware of it. It was not used in India. But internationally, there was a term home workers. And 
these international trade unions earlier, before the 80s, were very, very opposed to home workers. They felt that they undermined the formal sector. And uh, only in the 80s, after our experiments, ILO began talking about it, they saw the informalization. They also began getting interested in this whole issue of uh, homework and organ not only the issue of homework but organizing homeworkers and so um, <clears throat> I think with the help of some international organizations a meeting was organized of all the different organizations working with home-based workers and there were some in Southeast Asia there was of course us then there was an English one. Then uh, I think there was one in Australia. Uh, there was one from Brazil. And we had this discussion, found that there were similar issues. Um, and we were now interacting with the ILO in our different countries. Um, and we were also discussing this at the international trade union level. And it finally came to a head because at that time there was the, uh, the large international uh, overall uh, trade union, not the trade secretary, not the se separate trade federations. It was called the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions. Um, and uh, we, of course, were not a member because we were not a national trade union, but we, uh, through uh, the other national trade unions from the other countries, we managed to bring a, a resolution asking the ILO to have a home workers convention. We said home-based workers convention, and that's what the resolution said too. So we drafted that resolution, and one of our um, friends, uh, I think it was the German trade union, they raised it in the ICFTU uh, general body meeting and it was adopted as a resolution. So the international trade union movement had then, by then, adopted, after that, had adopted that as a resolution asking for a convention. And then, rather than SEVA raising it, it was the international trade unions which raised it at the ILO. And it was finally decided that in 1995 and 1996, the resolution, sorry, the convention process is a two-year process. It was decided that it would be, um, it would be listed for discussion as a convention in 1995. The first step in the development of an international labor standard at the ILO is the governing body placing an issue on the agenda of a future international labor conference which meets annually in Geneva. A report on the issue is sent to member states and to workers and employers' organizations for comments and then submitted to the International Labor Conference for a first discussion. Based on this discussion, the ILO Secretariat prepares a second draft, which is also sent for comments and submitted for discussion at the following session of the conference. It is discussed, amended as necessary and proposed for adoption. A two-thirds majority of votes is required for a standard to be adopted. How did the Convention on Home Workers get adopted? SEVA, which was already connected into the International Trade Union Network, was also working on activating associations and networks of home-based workers 
in other countries. When we were still a part of the Textile Labor Association, which was that big trade union I told you about, uh, through the Textile Labor Association, we were part of the international trade union. Now, let me just explain. Uh, there are two types of trade unions. One is the trade federations, like the International Garment Leather Workers Federation, the Metal Workers Federation, and so on. And then there is the overall uh, three, there were three at the time, of which one was the, the biggest one, of course, was the International Confederation of Free Trade Unions. Remember, this was the time when the Cold War was still going on. So there was a separate one for the uh, communist uh, countries. Um, and the one that was a, a, a member of the ILO was the ICFTU. Now, as I said, uh, SEVA was a part of the international... Uh, Textile Garment Leather Workers Federation when we were part of TLA. At some point, we had to leave TLA. We were actually expelled from TLA for various reasons, which I won't go into now. Um, and we lost all our international membership. But we realized the importance of being part of the larger trade union movement. And so we kept approaching, we kept wanting to be part of uh, the larger trade union movement. And that is where we got a lot of pushback and opposition from the Indian trade unions. Um, but finally, there was an international trade union called the IUF, the International Union of, and there was a long list, agriculture, tobacco, uh, food, and so on, so on, workers. And um, they were very, very progressive. And they said that they would make us a member. In 1985 or 86, we became a member of the IUF. And we worked closely. And the IUF was willing to take up informal worker causes. They were very progressive, as I said. And they were the ones that uh, brought us together with other trade unions who were their members. And the other two or three trade unions which were very supportive to us were the um, <clears throat> the FNV, which is the Dutch trade union, the German trade unions, the DDB, and uh, the British trade unions, the TUC. So um, they would, uh, all three of them had visited us and uh, they understood the issues. And uh, in the ICFTU, when the resolution was actually passed, it was the German trade unions who had been told by the IUF. So this was how we uh, contacted them. But at the same time, a new, another network building was going on, which was um, with the other organizations which are working with home-based workers in the other parts of the world. And um, although not all of them were trade unions, only a few were trade unions, uh, they were able to contact the trade unions in their own countries also. So, so we were having these two parallel uh, networking as we were going along. So it got to the ILO in 1995, actually. 
And uh, the, the, uh, the way it works is that there are these committees that are set up. And the committees are tripartite committees with the employers, the governments, and the workers. And the workers have one vote. The, um, I mean, the workers together have one vote. The employers together have one vote. And the governments together have two votes. And uh, we, uh, the workers, uh, and the workers are led, uh, one union or one person from a union is chosen as the worker representative or worker leader of the workers group. The person who was chosen was from the Dutch trade union and she sent a team to be with us before 1995, I think 1993 or four, to understand fully the, um, the actual meaning of uh, home-based work and what we needed, et cetera. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so they did. Now we actually were not really allowed as SEVA to be part of the, the um, deliberations. We were not part because we were not a national trade union. And so we could not come to the ILO. Um, but because we were, uh, we knew about home-based workers, etc. cetera, uh, the workers committee, uh, the chairman of the worker, chairwoman of the workers committee uh, or workers group uh, wanted us there. And so we were very much there as part of it. Uh, we also, uh, by then, brought together all these no other groups working with home-based workers and formed a organization, a network called HomeNet International. And HomeNet International uh, also was there as an NGO. Um, what's the time? Okay. Was also there as an NGO and uh, was allowed to put up exhibitions and lob especially do a lot of lobbying. A lot of lobbying was needed, not with the employers, but with the governments, because the government votes are crucial. And um, <clears throat> before 1995, and between 1995 and 1996, we also had a very good alliance with what was then UNIFEM and is now UN Women. And they organized meetings for us with governments to convince them uh, to vote in favor of a home workers convention. So 1995 was the first discussion and there was a real pushback from the employers. This was the first ever um, first ever convention on the informal economy. And as you know, the employers and industry was actually informalizing the workers all over the world. And because they were informalizing the workers, uh, they were not keen at all to have a convention on um, informal workers of any kind. And so there was, they, they opposed it tooth and nail in some ways. Um, uh, in 1995, we had to decide, the, uh, we means the committee had to decide whether it should go for convention or not go for convention. Um, and, uh, or it should be only a recommendation. And the employers, as I said, were totally against. 
Um, interestingly, the Western employers, Western governments were also against a convention, but uh, the governments from the South were much more positive. And uh, in the final vote, it was decided. The employers all voted no, the workers voted yes, and the governments di were divided. And we finally, it was finally decided uh, that it should be a convention. So that uh, was the first year. And of course, there were many clauses that went through. Now, I want to raise one more point, which was in the workers' committee itself, the question was, should the self-employed be also included? So should it be home-based workers or should it be only what they called home workers, which were uh, working on the contract or piece rate basis? And we pushed very hard for the self-employed to be included, but the workers rejected it. And so the convention itself is a home workers convention only for those who work on the peace rate, doesn't include the self-employed. In the ILO, the self-employed came in much later, that, and that's another story. You know, the ILO is dominated by, or the at least the workers' committees are dominated by the uh, Europeans, the European trade unions. And the European trade unions were really not concerned about self-employed because they don't have many self-employed. They were very concerned about um, work that was going away from the formal sector, the informal sector. And those were mainly the peace rate type of work. So um, <clears throat> the kind of work I described to you with the petticoats, that in many countries would have happened in a factory. The, all the processes would have taken place in a factory. Um, but now part of the processes are being taken uh, are being done through contractors at home. So they that and of course the rates are much less. Those are ununionized workers. The numbers of workers in the factories have come down. So those are the workers they were really concerned about. Um, and so that those were and they did not want to confuse uh, the issues with the issues of self-employed workers. They also argued that what can you do for self-employed worker in a convention, which is really uh, about enforcement of laws. And we said that what you can do for self-employed workers is a social security because the law includes social security. So um, we argued that self-employed workers should be included because then governments can have social security programs for them, including uh, improvement of housing, which is their home, their workplace. But the um, trade unions in the, especially the Western trade unions, were not keen on that at all. Uh, so that was the argument, and we lost that particular one. But the Home Workers Convention yeah. went ahead. Uh, one thing that was raised that the employers kept raising, uh, which seemed to convince the governments uh, against the convention, was that there is no data. Nobody knows anything about home-based workers or home workers. Um, we don't know how many they are. We don't know their conditions. Maybe they are none. Maybe they are very few. Maybe they are rich. Why should we uh, go for that? And in fact, one employer gave an example of how he works from home. And would he be a home worker? And should he be uh, covered by the convention? So this whole issue of data kept coming up. 
And so between 1995 and 1996, we had this friend at Harvard University and we approached her and we said, um, can you put together under the auspices of Harvard University, a study which tells us what information we have about home-based workers or home workers worldwide. And there were lots of little studies, um, some big studies, some little studies, and they actually put together, Harvard University put together a study, uh, just compiling all these different studies and analyzing them. And in 1996, when the discussion was resumed on the convention, uh, these studies were put out and that whole issue of data just disappeared. Under Convention 177, ratifying states are obliged to formulate, adopt and implement a national policy on homework aimed at improving the conditions of home workers in a consultative manner. Such a policy has to promote the equality of treatment between home workers and other workers, particularly in relation to their right to establish or join organizations of their choice and participate in their activities, protection against discrimination in employment and occupation, protection in the field of occupational safety and health, their remuneration, their statutory social security protection, their access to training, their minimum age for admission to employment or work, and maternity protection. Such a policy shall be implemented through laws, regulations, collective agreements, arbitration awards, or other national practices. Seva's friend at Harvard University was none other than Martha Chen, whom we have heard from earlier in this episode. Chen was born in India in 1944 in today's Uttarakhand. She had met Seva's founder Ila Bhatt in the 1980s when she was working with the development organization BRAC in Bangladesh. Yes, it was when I, I joined Harvard in, um, after we left India in 87. And originally I was with the Harvard Institute for International Development as a research fellow. But I was asked by the Kennedy School to start teaching at the Kennedy School within a year or two. So I, was, I had a dual affiliation with um, the Kennedy School at Harvard and the Harvard Institute for International Development. And um, it was through the economists at the Harvard Institute for International Development that I learned this mainstream take on the informal economy. And so I started when I first was there a discussion group across Harvard and across other um, institutions in the Massachusetts area, Boston area, um, uh, including MIT and Boston University on the informal economy, because I just couldn't understand this paradigm, right? And um, so I began reading. And meanwhile, I was doing some work with, um, well, with both Brack and Sewa. But the work with Sewa is what led to, to WeGo. And the precipitating event was around C-177, because, um, I was going to France for a Harvard conference um, in 19, um, would have been 1995, yeah. And the first vote of C-177 was happening, right? 
because the final vote was 70, 96, right? 97, yeah, 96. Yeah. yeah. So I went for the first vote and to show solidarity because Reynana and Ila were there and other people that I came to meet through them that then became part of WeGo. And um, I went with Ila Ben to the Palais where they had the preliminary vote on Convention 177. We were sitting in the gallery and um, it was quite a moment because you know the convention was passed but very narrowly and um, the situation was the employers all voted against it, the worker group voted for it, but it was the countries that were the deciding vote. And um, the next morning, Ilaban and I had breakfast in a little square and we sort of sat outside in a little square in Geneva. And I said, what can I do? Because I knew they had to struggle for the next year to get the final vote will also go for the convention. And she said, we need statistics. We need statistics on home workers to convince the governments. And um, so I said, of course, Ilaban, <laughs> we'll get you your statistics. So Ilaban always refers to that little square in Geneva as Harvard Square. She has a good sense of humor. So she calls, I don't even know where the square was, but she calls it Harvard Square. And I said, I would do the statistics. And um, so I went back to Cambridge and quickly found out through a statistical colleague in New York, uh, who is head of women's statistics. There were only, I think it was seven countries in the world that had a category called home workers in their statistics. And five were in Europe because of teleworkers and all of that. And one was Morocco and one was Japan or something like that, you know, just by chance. So what this colleague and I did with the help of one of my students was review all of the um, ad hoc studies, they're not national statistics on export garments to try to get a grasp of what percentage of the um, export garment workforce for home, home workers, because we knew them to be mainly concentrated in garments um, because of Asia. Um, and so we did our rough estimation from that. Um, and at the same time, Reynana and I were working with a woman at what was then Unifem. And so we enlisted Unifem to try to help convene a regional dialogue or two with governments on it. So um, that was happening. There was a regional dialogue in, in um, Bangkok. And um, I published this report on the statistics with my colleague, Jennifer Sebston. Um, and, and they printed several hundred copies of the report and put it outside the chambers where the the group was discussing, the tripartite group was discussing uh, homework during this, the second um, international labor conference. And I got from Reynana and Ila a postcard that I still have and I really should frame, but it said, um, the employers had their ideology, the workers had their statistics, the convention was passed. Right? And Ila and Reynana knew full well that statistics in the hands of workers is power. That's what Ila always said. And so this just 
and the fact that UNIFEM had 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 this regional dialogue with governments, it just made it clear that we needed something and that something became WIGO, where you would have a joint action of workers and researchers and statisticians and with um, international development practitioners or agencies. So um, that's what led to WIGO and we've worked together all these years. Um, it's going on 24 years now. Yeah. And on the basis of this whole experience, we got together and formed an international network. Of course, this was much later called WIGO, Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. So just, uh, just an outcome. WIGO, or Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing, is today the premier organization in the world that is working to increase the voice and visibility of the working poor, especially women. It supports, with statistics and with legal training, the development of strong membership-based organizations of informal workers that can negotiate for decent work and secure livelihoods. More about WIGO soon. Let's return to the adoption of Convention 177. There was the general vote on the convention. And the employers were so much against the convention, so much against the convention, that they boycotted the general vote. Um, in any case, even though they boycotted it, enough government supported it so that it did get passed. Um, but I'm especially raising this point because the employers then went back to their respective countries and made sure that no government was ready to pass to support the convention. So, uh, for example, uh, just one example uh, of uh, of course, India supported the convention, um, but India was not ready to uh, pass a law, and that was for another for another reason altogether. But an example, a good example is South Africa, because the South African government was the leader of the government uh, group, and they were very strong supporters of the convention, and uh, the minister. Uh, a labor minister of South Africa went back and he decided that he would uh, try to get it passed in parliament. And um, the employers mounted such a campaign that they never could get it passed. And this happened country after country after country. So in fact, although this was the first ever convention for informal workers, it was not ratified by many countries. I think even today, Hardly 15 countries have ratified it. Actually, only 10 countries have ratified Convention 177 since it was adopted at the International Labour Conference in 1996. That means that only 10 countries are obligated to implement the convention in their national laws. In contrast, the Domestic Workers Convention, which was adopted in 2011, has already been ratified by 31 countries. What is the use of an international labour standard if only 10 countries have adopted it. I asked Malis from Bromsen, the director of WIGO's law program. So there is some use, I think, of international conventions or standards or recommendations because they have a normative function. So to give you an example, um, there's an ILO recommendation 204 on formalizing the informal economy. It can't be ratified because it's not a convention. But in 
South Africa, for example, informal worker organizations have pressured government within the context of social dialogue at a, at a national level that we should be applying this recommendation. And in fact, and they've been successful in that the government created within the ILO Decent um, Work Program um, a subcommittee looking at recommendation 204 and ultimately there's a, a legal reform subcommittee looking at changing the Labor Relations Act to reflect recommendation 204. So that's an example of how an international instrument can be used if, but of course it depends on how strong the, it, it, it depends on a lot of things. A, whether the, in, the um, informal economy organizations have some strength, whether they have voice at the national level, whether they um, are, are at the table in the context of uh, social dialogue, whether they have the support of the trade unions, and, it, and also um, the nature of the state. So I think in the context of C177, where most of the producing countries are in Asia and one doesn't always have a liberal democratic state, there's a lot of union suppression, it's, it's a more complex task. Um, but, but certainly, it's, I think it's got normative value, and perhaps we need to explore that normative value more. I think it's just one weapon that we uh, use when talking to, first, when you talk to governments, you say, you know, home-based workers have been recognized internationally, and this is the convention of ILO. And we should, and then there are all these different clauses in the convention of what can be done. And so we talk about those and say these are the clauses and maybe it says social security. Maybe we should be thinking about social security. It says data collection. It said, how do we do data collection? So it's just one a weapon or one um, arrow in the whole uh, scheme of things. Um, at the international level, one of the things that we did manage to do is after the convention, we had a, um, a meeting in Kathmandu and the South Asian, all the South Asian governments had come and uh, a, a, a Kathmandu declaration was formed uh, for home-based workers. And we used a lot of the convention clauses in that. And um, uh, from that, we formed the uh, HomeNet South Asia, which has been quite effective in promoting in many of the South Asian countries. Uh, so, you know, but the thing again is one has to remember that home-based workers do remain invisible. And one of the things that I didn't mention was that home-based workers themselves don't realize they are workers. So if you ask a home-based worker, do you do anything? So she'll say, because Work is always associated with going out of the house. So um, I think what we have managed to do is raise awareness that home-based workers are workers. Uh, there are many um, trade, many states where you have minimum wages for home-based workers. As I said, the new labor codes have formed home-based workers, uh, home-based workers uh, as a separate category. And um, we've managed some social security for homeless workers. So I think uh, it's a lot of it is about organizing and raising awareness, really.
Yes, so I think Bulgaria is a good example of what happens once a, a, a country has ratified the convention and what's then available to them. So in the case of Bulgaria, it was the Bulgarian Home Workers Association that pushed uh, for the ratification of Convention 177. And it had the support of the national, one of two of the national union confederations. Um, and as a result, so what happens once you've, so the convention was then ratified. Once the convention's ratified, um, the two main, three main steps then. One is that the national government is meant to have a policy on homework. Two, they are meant to amend their national legislation to give effect to the to um, the convention. And three, they then have to report to the International Labour Organization on the implementation of the convention. So in the case of Bulgaria, um, once the convention had been ratified, the um, Bulgarian Homeworkers Association, which at that stage was not a trade union, right? Um, so the Homeworkers Association, the trade union confederations, I think, too, um, and the government signed a national agreement. And that national agreement was meant to be then reflected in, in, the, um, in, in the legislation. Um, and then what happened, and there was no, what they didn't do is have a homeworker policy. So one year after the convention is when you have to first report as a government and um, trade unions can then also send in a, a shadow report, a report next to the government's report to say, well, this is our opinion on how the convention's been implemented. So a year in homeworkers found there was absolutely no difference at all. The legislation had been changed um, or amended rather, uh, and governments said, well, it doesn't apply to you because you have to have a contract if for the legislation to apply. And of course, that's the problem for homeworkers. They don't have contracts. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg. Um, so they then tried to, they wrote letters to the trade unions in Europe. So I think, you know, in that sense, one must remember, it gives you some kind of currency in terms of being able to access um, enforcement mechanisms, even if they are informal outside of your country. Um, and they, they lodged a complaint with the ILO, but it couldn't be an official complaint because at that um, point, they were not a trade union. Um, so nothing really happened. Then, uh, it was two years ago in 2018, the government had to lodge a second complaint, uh, sorry, a second report um, on the progress on complying with the convention. So what had happened after the first, um, sorry, the first, um, report is that the committee of experts, which is made up of 20 jurists, um, had come back with a whole set of questions for the Bulgarian government to, to answer. So when the five-year um, report was due, at that stage, the Bulgarian Homeworkers Association had um, become a new, larger association of informal workers um, that included home-based workers, and they were able to register as a trade union, which was very critical. Because the moment they were able to register as a trade union, which is often not, not permitted by many countries, um, in the case of informal workers, they then had standing as far as the ILO is concerned. And they were able to submit their own report um, to the ILO. So at that point, they asked the Uyghur to assist them with this process. So, so we did a few things. So the first was to that the 
ILO had asked the government for a, a research report on the terms and conditions of work of home workers. And the government had never submitted something like that. And there were no official reports of that nature. I think the King Coast campaign had at some point had done some research, but it wasn't that recent. So what we did was to, to then interview home workers and compile a research report on their terms and conditions, including wages, that the unity, which is the um, English name of the informal workers' trade union, could then submit to the ILO as its report, as a WIGO's report on the terms and conditions for home workers. The second thing is that we had a workshop with all the home workers where we, so it was a participative process and we helped them write the report to the ILO um, detailing how the government had not complied with, with the convention. And the key thing here was that the legislation had been amended but it hadn't been amended to reflect the national agreement. So in fact, what the legislation did say about home workers was if you are someone who's a factory worker and then you start working from home, for example, and you know, as a with, because you needed to work from home for childcare purposes or, or whatever, then you are still considered an employee. What it didn't do was say, well, if you are a home worker, you are covered by the legislation. So what the so it could then be because they were a trade union, be formally um, submitted to the committee of experts. The committee of experts immediately came back to the government and said, here are a whole set of questions based on this, uh, both the research by WIGO, as well as the report submitted by UNITY, and that the government should answer these questions. And it also addressed the trade union um, federation. Initially, the trade union federation's response was to, to support the interpretation of the government. But then, in fact, then, submitted a report really echoing Unity's um, findings. And so what it did at the time, although the legislation hasn't been changed yet, what it did do is it allowed a space back at the table uh, for the home worker organization. So previously the government had basically closed its doors and wasn't even willing to engage in any dialogue. Um, and this was extremely important in the context of COVID where they were able to be um, represent their members and and the government would particularly around the dialogue of of access to social protection in in the context of COVID. so i think it's a nice illustration of what it does mean if you if um, conventions are ratified at the national level how they can be used by informal worker organizations so it uh, the convention itself um was not much ratified but the home-based workers, I think, have become much more visible. And in India, just for one example, but there are more, uh, you know, the new labor codes that have been passed recently. So uh, they've, uh, they've, they've um, defined three types of workers, self-employed, wage workers, and home-based work, home workers. So they've been defined as a category in themselves. The Indian statistics are now picking up are now uh, uh, collecting the statistics. As I said, our last count was 35 million. Um, and there have been a number of different uh, policies, such as insurance for the home-based workers. So the, the majority of home workers that we work with are in the garment and footwear sector. Um, and, and I think supply chains 
probably look quite differently to what they did in 20 years ago. Certainly, there are a whole lot more countries that are producing for the garments and footwear sector that weren't producing before. So I think that a lot of the um, focus 20 years ago was on India in particular, where a number of the, the home workers were producing for, for domestic supply chains. Um, Whereas now, 20 years later, we've got relative newcomers to into global supply chains, particularly in the garment and footwear sector, such as um, Vietnam um, and Cambodia. Um, so, so in that sense, there are probably more homeworkers in more countries than there were 20 years ago. Um, and of course, I think one must differentiate between two types of homeworkers. I mean, the one in broad terms, so the one grouping are artisans who have for decades been um, part of production that, that demands a lot of skill. So for example, um, embroidery work and uh, so for embroidery on, on saris, for example, in, in India, it's an extraordinary thing to watch. The, the other grouping are homeworkers that, I mean, they're fairly low skill activities that can be transferred easily to other parts of the world. Um, and, and those are tasks like cutting threads off t-shirts or threading um, tires through track pants or, you know, the ironing and packaging at the end. So, so those are really skills because they're being transferred to home workers for a range of reasons. One being because it's a flexible uh, workforce. And, and the other reason would be that they're being paid between um, a third and half the minimum wage. And, and essentially it's an unregulated part of the chain altogether. WeGo emerged from the urgent need for a better understanding of informal workers in policy spaces. But its founders also realized that research and data were not enough on their own to secure decent work for informal workers. Organizing informal workers would be critical and traditional forms of labor organizing were not meeting those needs. The pursuit of these objectives continues to drive from Brumson's work at WeGo's law program even today. So the research part um, would be on, so I'm one of the researchers, uh, would be to both um, in academic journals to publish on homeworkers, to write blogs, um, but also to sp speak in policy context. So at the moment, I'm getting a lot of invitations there in the context of Europe um, and particularly Germany, which is a lead country pushing for this EU mandatory due diligence on what they're calling expert discussions. Um, so, you know, so sometimes definitely we're pushing our members to be part of those expert discussions. Um, sometimes it's an invitation directly attributed to WECO. Um, and so in that context, we would then um, talk about homework in the context of that discussion. The, the part where we're working with organizations, I think this EU process is a very good example. So we've had 18 months, so we had planned a meeting in Bangkok with um, all the homework organizations from these 10 countries, together with 
um, allies and a whole and trade unions to begin a participatory process of, of strategizing regionally um, for home workers in, in garment and footwear in the garment and footwear sector. Because of COVID, we had to cancel that. So what we did then was to embark on a series of webinars. We had 10 webinars in all. Um, and the beginning, it was to, and that, sorry, just to backtrack. So the, the goal of those webinars are threefold. One, to um, support a greater sense of solidarity of homeworkers across country, regional, across countries. Um, and we were reflecting the coordinator, uh, Suntory Sunny of HomeNet Southeast Asia, how powerful this meeting was on Friday when together online, um, all organizations submitted their uh, pieces to the European Commission simultaneously. Um, and a sense of common purpose now as we plan together what the next steps are over the, over the next two years. Um, so, so sorry, so that was the one sort of function of the webinars. The second was to introduce um, allies to the movement and to look at how at a regional and country level um, homeworkers could um, forge linkages with the King Codes campaign, with the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, with the Workers' Rights Consortium um, themselves. And those organizations bring sort of international pressure to bear on what are local um, labor concerns. Um, and then the third was to understand, you know, I think a lot of what has happened previously is that homeworkers understood their issues in the context of what was happening nationally as an employment, national employment issue. Um, and so really what we focused on as we go in the last 18 months was to have a greater understanding of the supply chain dynamics and how those impact on the working conditions for home workers. Um, so part of the function of the webinars was to have those discussions to both with expertise within WIGO, but also, you know, other experts like Professor Mark Anna, who's written a lot on this and worked um, with us to, for him to do uh, presentations and have sessions of question answers. So I'm speaking, so we've done this as the law program as well and the organization and representation program. So that's the trade union arm um, of WIGO. So, you know, I'm speaking about the work that we've done together, but there's also the social protection arm, which has done a lot of social protection work uh, with home workers in particular um, around childcare um, and then also in Southeast Asia around um, access to universal social income, uh, uh, oh, sorry, universal, what's that, so, social grant. Um, well, I think one highlight is that our original uh, problem statement has held <laughs> in, and we're chipping away at it, but we had this notion and it was in a pair of diagrams that you had a pair of triangles, one was like this, and the tip of the pyramid is formal workers and the broad base is informal. And the other one was an inverted pyramid like that, where all of the support goes towards the tip and all of the constraints go to the bottom. And it's, that's what we're trying to change, right? And, you know, that's still the battle. That's still the battle. Um, and, you know, you think of what's happening with COVID relief, or recovery rather, and all of the stimulus packages being you know, captured by the tip and not the base. Um, so that 
that that held. And what we decided in the first year of planning after a planning retreat was that we needed um, to be two things. We needed to be solid on research and statistics, but we also needed to help with the organizing and the networking of the organ, you know, so we needed to be part social movement and part think tank. And so we've kept that going. And so the main program is a program on statistics and another is a program on organization and representation. Those are two solid, solid programs. And through the statistics program, which is to work with the ILO, the UN Statistical Commission, um, the national statistical offices to improve measurement of informal employment, because that was also one of the constraints. It wasn't well measured. So we now in 2018 got the first ever global estimates of informal employment with the ILO. So we've done three statistical publications with the ILO on women and men in informal employment. And the first two had built up sort of a regional picture, but the third was able to present this global. So we now know that well over half, 61% of all workers globally are informal and in developing countries, it's 90% in emerging economies, 67. And in, um, in developed countries, it's 18, right? And in developed countries, it's more wage employment than self. You know, we, so we have these stylized, we know, we now know for sure what we sort of knew instinctively because of the data. And that's why we're now about to publish um, this global statistical brief on home-based workers for the launch of HomeNet International, which is happening in February. So the statistical work has really, really, really been important to us. And it's taken a long time. When we first started working with the ILO, they would measure informal um, enterprises in the informal sector in special ad hoc city level surveys. They never took the labor force and tried to unpack it to say what percentage of the labor force is informal. And I remember sitting with somebody in the statistics office and saying, this is what we want. It was a tree. You know, we, this is what we, oh, that's what you want, right? And so now that's what's happening is, you know, you, it's part of official labor force statistics. So that all of those, there have been many achievements along the way has been huge. And then in, on the, through the organization and representation program, we have really helped find and link and strengthen organizations of the workers. So there are now national, regional and international networks like federations of organizations of informal workers, domestic workers, home-based workers, street vendors, and waste pickers. So among the home-based workers, um, you know, there's South Asia, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, and Central Asia, Latin America upcoming, and Africa upcoming. So we've got, you know, three registered regional and two coming up regional. And then we're launching HomeNet International on February 22nd, 23rd, I think it is. Um, so 
that movement of workers is, you know, it's taken a lot of time and really building their capacity. And the third signature of, of WeGo, and we learned a lot from Sewa, is that we, with increased visibility in the statistics, increased voice through organization, we're trying to, for the sake of a third V, improve their validity as economic work actors, as workers, you know, that they're not the problem child that the mainstream economists think. So we spend a lot of time bringing informal worker leaders to the policy table. And so it started with around the conventions. We weren't involved directly in, in 177, but 189 on domestic workers. We brought domestic worker leaders from around the world to uh, Geneva for three ILCs in a row, one just to expose them to the processes and then for the two years of discussion of the convention on domestic workers and that was passed. And then we've brought them to other critical ILC discussions, including 2002, there was a major discussion on the informal economy at the ILO. And we had, um, and what we do is we have preparatory workshops. So we had like 50 organizations from 25 countries meet in regional workshops and come up with a platform of demands that we can then present. And we would bring a delegation of informal worker leaders to the ILC for these. And we've done it for um, other critical discussions. There's been further discussions on home workers, on the green jobs, on um, violence at work, whatever the, if the topic's really relevant, we bring them. And we've brought delegations of worker leaders to the World Urban Forums and um, throughout the Habitat Three preparatory process and the summit. And, uh, and we were told that between Slum Shack Dwellers International and WeGo and the Waru Commission, Habitat 3 was the first time that grassroots worker leaders, or le and they're not all workers, but grassroots leaders really had a voice in the Habitat 3 process. And we've done that with climate change negotiations. And um, yeah, there was a commission on women's economic empowerment, um, the UN commission, and we brought you know, they were gonna have a, a discussion. The UN women and government of Costa Rica and members of the commission were gonna talk about domestic workers in Latin America. And the ILO was there, everyone was there. And we were the ones who said, but aren't, why don't we bring domestic workers to the table, right? So then we were able to bring domestic workers from I think four countries in Latin America to that consultation. And they were the only ones there and then they were fabulous, right? When the prime minister of Costa Rica um, came, he said, I don't wanna hear myself, I wanna hear you. And they had their hands up right away. They, you know, they were forceful um, people to reckon with. And we had other uh, worker leaders. There was a street vendor leader from Costa Rica that was very powerful. So um, yeah, that's, that's what we do. And we have three areas of policy that we work on, urban policies, social protection, and law. And I think we've made major strides in the discourse on, on urban policies because 
the urban discourse on informality was all about informal settlements and it wasn't about informal livelihoods. So, you know, I'm beginning this week, I'm co-teaching a course at Harvard with um, Rahul Marotra, the architect, and Bish Sanyal, the urban scholar um, at MIT on cities and the informal economy, rethinking urban development, planning and design, right? So, and, you know, we've got the Indian Institute of Human Settlements, a lot of collaboration around informal livelihoods. So I think we've put informal livelihoods on the urban planning discussion quite a bit. And certainly the social protection field uh, knows that by definition, informal workers don't have it. And so we're very much influential in that domain. And then law, the reason we started one on law is because the mainstream negative narrative is that the informal workers are outside the reach of the state by choice. They choose to remain outside. And yet what they experience is daily harassment, evictions, confiscations. You know, to them, the state is omnipresent in their lives in a very negative way, right? And so we wanted to start by saying, you know, the state can be there in a punitive way or in a protective way. And right now the state uses law punitively. So like in India, if you're a street vendor and you're not, this is before the new law, but if you were a street vendor and not licensed, you were treated under the criminal code by the police. And the street vendors could cite chapter and verse from the criminal code because that's when they were issued summary warrants or had their goods confiscated or evicted. This they were under the criminal code, and so we've had to really show that they've never been outside the reach of the state. It's just that the apparatus and the legal frameworks are biased towards um, formal, right? I mean, you think, uh, I'm not a labor economist, I work on labor, I'm an anthropologist, but labor economics, the notion of supply and demand in labor markets and market clearing, that only works in labor markets where everyone is wage employed. If you're self-employed and your labor market is half or two thirds or three quarters self-employed person, the whole concept of supply and demand doesn't work because what is, the demand for the self-employed worker. It's a demand for their goods. It's not a demand for their labor. They're supplying their own labor, right? So you have to think extremely differently, right? The same that we had to change labor force statistics um, and we're still doing it. For instance, in labor force statistics, we're doing this with the HILO. The main categories, you're an employer, you're an employee, you're an own account worker who's self-employed, not hiring others, or you're a contributing family worker who works in the family firm headed by the own account worker, or you're a, a member of a co-op, but nobody measures that. So there were four categories, employer, employee, whatever. So where did the home workers fit in that? Think about that. Where did the home workers fit? Where did the casual day laborers fit? Um, 
where do other dependent contractors like truck drivers and all of that, right? Most of them were classified by the statisticians under own account, self-employed, right? Because they weren't employees in the standard sense and they weren't employers, but they were classified as self-employed, right? But so many of them are dependent, right? But not in the employer-employee sense, right? So we have now gotten added to the status and employment classification, a new category called dependent contractor, which will include the Uber drivers, it'll include the home workers, it'll include the so-called independent truckers who don't own their truck, don't set their routes, don't set their prices, don't do anything, right? They're misclassified deliberately by the lead firm as independent contractors, but they're actually dependent contractors. And so this has been a big battle. So we're, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to challenge the existing frameworks that do not reflect the reality of this work. And I'd say to all the ILO people, you know, and labor economists, you know, it's not labor regulations that impact most of the informal workers, right? Because most of them are, a few of them are, employees but and a few are employers that hire others but like two percent right most of the vast majority are own account workers or contributing family workers right now we know the own account are often misclassified and some will end up in the dependent but that's where the majority are and that's it's not labor regulations that are impacting them it's if they're urban it's the city's rules and regulations it's if they're in agriculture, it's the rules around agriculture. I mean, look at the farmer protests in India right now, right? It's it's those rules and regulations. It's not um, labor regulations that are affected. But the whole world of labor, labor regulations, labor organizations, labor statistics are just there. It's all organized around the formal wage worker. And it's not the reality of work. So at the moment, um, one um, on WeGo's agenda is to support the uh, formation of HomeNet International. Um, the second is, is that we've been working for about 18 months with home workers specifically in Asia across uh, 10 Asian countries and South and Southeast Asia, um, and specifically who, those who are organizing homeworkers in the garment and footwear sector. Um, at the moment, there's a process happening in the European Union, um, whereby the European Union is considering um, a legislative framework to um, on making it mandatory for uh, brands and retailers, corporations, to know what's going on in their supply chains. So it's called mandatory due diligence. Um, and that may have uh, liability implications for the brands and retailers. Because of course the brands and retailers response, and we've seen this in, in the context of COVID, are, these are not our workers. We are just, um, we just have a contract with factories in developing countries and, and it's a commercial contract between us and the factory. These are the factory's workers. Um, and so this is a, a beginning, we hope, of a, a process of taking some responsibility for homework, uh, sorry, for, for workers in their supply chains. So our priority is 
for home workers to be recognized as part of the supply chain. And we, we certainly got that recognition. And when I say we, I'm talking about the WeGo network. So it's WeGo, but the network are the organizations that are part of the network. Um, at the International Labour Organization's um, conference in 2016, it was a general uh, discussion on supply chain. So there was a, a recognition that homeworkers are part of the intrinsic part of the supply chain, but that doesn't always carry through. So, so we are working both with allies, uh, such as the Clean Clothes Campaign, we're a member of the Clean Clothes Campaign, um, and the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, um, and other allies, that, that the message should be that the entire chain should be um, regulated, because as soon as you leave part of the chain off and unregulated, um, that has implications for all workers in the chain. So on Friday the 7th, well, what was it? Uh, well, Monday the 8th was the due date for submissions to the EU Commission on whether you, whether the parties think that there should be such legislation. Um, and 13 organizations, WeGo, HomeNet South Asia, and HomeNet Southeast Asia, and then 10 membership-based organizations from nine countries um, made submissions to the EU Commission to say yes, that there should be such legislation and that homeworkers should be um, recognized as part of the supply chain, um, you know, in the context of this legislation. So we had a participatory process of putting together a platform of demands, which we've um, addressed to the EU Commission. Um, and now there's a, you know, our goal will be over the next two years as this legislation is put into place um, to advocate for homeworkers to be recognized and included. One could perhaps say that the campaign around adopting Convention 177 was a reward in itself. Today, membership-based organizations of home-based workers are more formally networked through the HomeNet networks. HomeNet South Asia, the regional network of home-based worker organizations spread across Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, India, Maldives, Nepal, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka, was founded in 2000 after Vigo, Seva, and Unifem worked to bring the governments and labor unions of eight countries together for the Kathmandu Declaration, which called for the formation of countrywide national policies that ensure minimum protection on social and economic security. HomeNet Pakistan, which was formed in 2005, is a network of 360 organizations of home-based workers having nearly 50,000 women members from across the country. Networks such as these seem to offer informal sector workers a strong alternative to federations of traditional labor unions. At the same time, associations that do not organize around work, but around issues of women or development or human rights, may have some distance to go before they are able to truly represent the interests of workers. Well, first of all, informal workers are not typically in a standard workplace, right? Um, and particularly the home workers and the domestic work, the home-based workers and the domestic workers who are in private homes. They're isolated, invisible. They don't know about each other necessarily. Um, and, but even if you're a street vendor, you're more visible, you see the other street vendors, um, there are barriers, but let's stick with the home-based workers and the domestic workers. So they're working in homes, they're isolated, they're invisible, 
the family sees them as just sort of doing something around the edges. They see themselves as sort of combining domestic chores with some other work. Um, so there's a need to recognize self-recognition and the recognition by others that they're actually workers, right? That that needs to happen. It's And then there is a need for somebody, some catalytic force to bring together clusters of them to talk about their common problems so that they can realize that all of them are facing work order shortages at times. None of them get the Diwali bonus they were promised. Um, none of them have had their peace rate raised for two decades. You know, they begin to see the common problems, but there has to be a catalyst for that, right? And it can be a local leader, but it's often not a, a catalyst. Uh, it's not the catalyst, a local leader. So. And then the question is whether those catalysts who bring them together and talk about their problems are focused on, there could be two broad issues. One, if they're home-based self-employed on their marketing. So there could be groups that help with the marketing, but are not really organizing them as workers, right? The other is you could have groups that are organizing them that are more sort of charity organizations, women's organizations that organize them around women's issues, but not as workers, right? So many of the organizations of these workers that we come across are under NGOs, right? They're not under trade unions and they're not necessarily seeing themselves as workers fighting for certain rights as workers. And that's another whole step that needs to happen. And in the formation of these networks that we help form, there's some real battles around the constitution that says the organizations that are NGOs and not membership-based organizations of workers as workers are affiliate members of the Federation, not main members. That's real, that's politics, right? And we've had to deal with that a lot because we're really trying to build federations of membership-based organizations of workers. And some of the NGOs get it and they realize that they're a support and that it's the organization of the workers that really needs to be a member. But others sort of are, have a hard time letting go of, of power. But meanwhile, who's not organizing them is the, the mainstream trade unions, right? Not many of them are doing this, right? Not many of them. Um, domestic workers are under the rubric of the International Union of Food and Allied Workers. So they're a recognized constituency of a global union federation, but home workers are not, right? That was Mata Chen one of the founders of WeGo, who once sat with Seva's founder, Ila Bhatt, at a square in Geneva that they whimsically called Howard Square and talked about the work that would have to go into visibilizing home-based work. That work continues through the networks of membership-based organizations and through the statistical and legal analysis at WeGo. Informal employment around the world only continues to grow. More than half of the world's workforce is estimated to be part of the informal economy with that figure rising to more than 90% in developing countries such as India. In developing countries, women workers are more likely to be part of the informal sector than men. 
while the obligations set out under the home workers convention are not binding on most governments of the world it remains a strong tool that can help home workers organize and demand better conditions of work along with the ilo social protection flows recommendation of 2012 known as recommendation 202 the home work convention may be seen as a pillar of the international strategy to improve the conditions of work in the informal sector recommendation 202 provides guidance to member states in providing to all members of society a basic level of social security throughout their lives it helps states prioritize the establishment of national floors of social protection accessible to all in need including workers in the informal economy and their families these international standards are part of the broader project to visibilize the undervalued work in the informal economy and in this episode of the nagrik podcast we got an insight into the work that went into the adoption of these standards and the networks and associations of informal workers that emerged from that campaign thanks to renana jawala martha chen eileen boris malis from brumzen and dev nathan for sharing their memories and their expertise my name is aju john and this was the nagrik podcast and i thank you all for listening <laughs>